If you're new here, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jeff Chang. I serve as one of the elders here. So glad that you're here, uh, and I hope I have a chance to meet you after the service. Well, as we all know, the kind of hero that you need reveals the problems that you are up against. You know, if your problem in life is a fire-breathing monster from outer space, then you need a hero like Superman, right, who can come and beat up that fire-breathing monster. If your problem is a corrupt, top-secret government agency, then you need Jason Bourne, right, uh, able to go undercover and fight martial arts and drive cars and travel undetected. You know, if your problem in life is that you are trapped in a life of servitude by an evil stepmother, then the hero that you need is a prince to come and sweep you off your feet and marry you. I'm not sure that any of you are facing those kinds of problems. I wonder what problems you are facing. You know, as we've said already, the holiday season has a way of highlighting our troubles, loneliness, the loss of loved ones, you know, regret over life decisions, declining health, an uncertain future. Friends, I wonder what problems you have brought with you here this morning. Or to ask it another way, I wonder what kind of savior you think you need. Well, this morning we are going to continue our occasional series through 1 Samuel. And we come to, really, I think, the climax of the book. Uh, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, the story of David and Goliath. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Feel free to turn there now in your Bibles. Actually, if, if you're not used to listening to a sermon, you'll be helped by having the Bible open in front of you so you can follow along as we move through this sermon. Uh, this is found on page 239 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. And, and here in this Advent season... I can't think of a better text for us to be in because Christmas is all about the good news of the birth of the Savior. And this passage gives us a wonderful glimpse of that Savior. All right, so if I, if I had one main takeaway that I would want all of us to walk away with this morning, it's this. And I think I have a slide for this. Big idea. Jesus is exactly the Savior that you need. All right, Jesus is exactly the Savior that you need. That's what I want you to walk away with this morning, convinced of, down to your very being. Whatever you're facing, whatever your fears, whatever your past or your future or your problems, Jesus is exactly the Savior that you need. And if you're taking notes, I've got three points to help us move through this text. Point number one our unconquerable enemy, our unconquerable enemy. Point number two, God's unexpected hero. And point number three, the king's unstoppable salvation. All right. Friends, I pray that we would marvel at Jesus this morning. So look with me, 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 1. Our unconquerable enemy. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor between, uh, on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not 
servants of Saul. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Well, you'll remember the last time we were in 1 Samuel chapter 16, it tells the story of David becoming God's anointed. Uh, He was anointed by Samuel, filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet, strangely, he's not the king of Israel yet, right? Saul is still the king. And Saul has been rejected by God for his unfaithfulness. Well, this chapter begins with the Philistines and the Israels once again gathered for battle. But rather than simply slaughtering one another, out from the Philistine camp comes a champion, Goliath of Gath. And the narrator here is trying to give us an idea of Goliath, of who he is. He gives us all kinds of measurements. I appreciate the ESV's desire to stick to the Hebrew scriptures, but I have no idea how much a shekel is. All right. So let's do some conversion here, shall we? He is nine foot nine. I mean, I just bought a nine foot Christmas tree. I mean, that's big. Right, he is tall. Um, he, he's a man. He's a human being, but he's no ordinary human being. I mean, he is a giant. Have you, have you ever seen those, like, world's strongest men competitions? These huge dudes who eat, like, 10,000 calories a day and carry around logs. I mean, Goliath would have made those guys look small. Um, in, in a day when soldiers fought in close hand-to-hand combat, this kind of size and strength would have given him a huge advantage. He had had longer reach. He had tremendous strength. And we we hear about his strength in his armor. He he was heavily armored. Uh, Bronze is an alloy, right? So it's stronger than iron. Bronze would have likely been the strongest metal of that time. Uh, But it's also heavier. So it would have been difficult for a normal man to wear uh, bronze armor, but not for Goliath. Right? The narrator here emphasizes his, his coat of mail, literally an armor of scale, weighing 125 pounds. And yet it was the, the scale design allowed still for some flexibility and mobility. He had a bronze helmet, of course, and bronze armor on his legs, which would have been important for such a tall warrior. I mean, this guy was a tank. He had a javelin of bronze for, for long-distance attacks. He had a massive spear to give him long reach. A a typical spearhead is about two to four pounds. Goliath's was more like 15 to 16 pounds, the the spearhead. I mean, again, that just highlights how strong he is and how how massive his attacks would have been. On top of that, he has a shield bearer, which was typical strategy in those days. The shield bearer would protect your flanks so that nobody could surround you. You know, in the conventional way that soldiers fought In that time, Goliath was virtually an unconquerable enemy. I mean, he was unbeatable. Uh, It it would be like if prime LeBron James came here and challenged any one of us to a game of one-on-one, right? To to a dunk contest or something. I know some of you think you can beat LeBron James one-on-one, but but I I assure you, you cannot. Well, this Goliath comes out and he bellows out the terms of the challenge. Right? One-on-one battle, fight to the death, and whoever wins, the, uh, the losing nation is in servitude to them. Well, Goliath is not just challenging Israel. He's defying them. He's taunting them. He's belittling their king and their God. And how do the people of Israel respond? Absolute terror. I mean, they're not fools. They, they are warriors. They know what it's like to fight. And they know that none of them can stand up to this guy. You know, if you've ever heard a sermon on this passage where the point was about how if you just believe in yourself, you can overcome the giants in your life, the preacher has missed the point of the passage. Because the whole point of this section is not to cause us to think, you know, yeah, I could take on Goliath. No, that, that's not the point. 
the whole point of this passage is to reveal the fact that Israel was up against an unconquerable enemy. Had Saul or any of his soldiers stepped out there to fight him in single combat, they would have been slaughtered. Israel would have been routed. You know, if you're going to identify with anyone in this story, it would be with the people of Israel. I mean, there they are, helpless, cowering. Even while this unconquerable enemy is taunting you to your face. So, so what are the unconquerable enemies in our life? I mean, I think for, for many of us, we rarely feel that we have an unconquerable enemy that we're facing. I mean, we talked about some of the problems in our lives. I, I mentioned that in our introduction. But are, all those, are any of those things really that unconquerable? Right? We, we can work hard and advance in our career. Uh, I can find new friends. I can build new relationships. I can diet and exercise and get healthier. And all those things are good things. But in spite of that, I would suggest that left to ourselves, all of us face at least three unconquerable enemies in our lives today. All right? At least three. First, there's the old enemy, Satan. Right? Did you know that there is a spiritual being out there who hates you and who hates God? He is the most skillful deceiver that has ever existed. And through his lies, he holds this entire world in bondage. And that includes us. So that we do his bidding, so that we serve him and that we hate God. You know, most of us go through our day utterly oblivious to the fact that we're living in a spiritual war zone. We think that what we see is all that there is. And that too is part of Satan's strategy. In reality, we are up against a demonic colossus. And none of us stand a chance. I mean, we fall for his lies again and again and again. And on that final day, even though Satan has tricked us into serving him, that same Satan will turn around and accuse us to our face before God, reminding us of all the ways we have failed, condemning us for our guilt. Friend, this is the unconquerable enemy that you are up against. Here's another one. Death, right? So far in human history, death rate is still 100%. The fact that you get sick, the fact that your body is breaking down, all this points to this one inescapable reality. Let me be clear, death is an enemy, right? Death cuts us off from all that is good in this world. We live in a world that is increasingly trying to convince us that death is a friend, that death is an ally, a solution to our problems. You know, even this week, Canada's euthanasia laws are evidence of this moral delusion. No, we have to be really clear. Death is no friend to the human race. It is a curse. It is a product of the fall. It is an unconquerable enemy that we face. And the world and Satan are all too happy to help you ignore that reality. You know, they, they would rather you go through your entire life thinking that you're invincible, thinking that this could never happen to you. You know, we, we, you go to a funeral service, you come face to face with the reality of death, and you walk away thinking, oh, that poor chap. What a shame. I wonder what's for lunch. You know, our lives are filled with all sorts of distractions up to the very last moment, and then the end comes, and we are shocked by the finality of death. You know, those are two unconquerable enemies, but they're not the worst ones. No, in fact, our worst enemy is not spiritual. It's not biological. No, our, it's theological. Our worst problem is the unconquerable enemy of our sin. The reason why Satan and death are such unconquerable enemies is because each one of us have sin. Ever since our first parents rebelled against God, all of humanity has been corrupted down to our very nature. And we are now enslaved to our sin. The death and the spiritual warfare that we experience points, they're the results of this deeper problem of our sin. Humanity has turned away from God and now is reaping the judgment of God for our sins. 
You know, sin has made Almighty God our worst enemy. We have sought to dethrone him. We have put ourselves on the throne of our lives. And for that, we stand under the just wrath of God. The just and holy God will one day come and judge us for our sins. And we will bear the punishment that we deserve. An eternity of torment, separated from all that is good and all that is God. If we are to understand ourselves rightly in this story, and in the whole storyline of Scripture, we have to know that we are in desperate trouble. Satan, death, sin, these unconquerable enemies that we face, left to ourselves, we would perish without hope. So friend, let that sink in. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm merely asking you to feel the absolute desperation and the humility of your condition. Perhaps for the very first time in a long time, I'm calling you to feel your helplessness, right? You need someone to save you. Point number two. God's unexpected hero. Look at verse 12. Now David was a son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, the and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your soldiers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, 
The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Well, David is not what you would have expected a hero to look like. I mean, at this point, David is likely, I would guess, somewhere between 16, 19 years old. We see in verses 12 to 15 that when he's not working for Saul as his court musician, he's tending to his father's sheep. You know, his, his older brothers are off fighting wars and doing important things. But David is being obedient to his father, Jesse, who's, who's in old age. He's humbly tending to the flock. So when his father asks him to bring, him, bring supplies to his brothers, he, he gladly goes. And by the time he arrives at the battlefield, we learn in verse 16 that it's been 40 days. With each passing day, Israel's shame increases, and Saul is growing desperate. Well, David arrives, he, he runs to the battle line, and he hears Goliath's challenge. And, and notice, immediately, David is indignant, right? Doesn't Goliath know whom he's taunting? These are the armies of the living God. Israel is God's covenant people, those who have received the sign of circumcision. This Philistine dares to defy God? Notice David doesn't even mention how big Goliath is. Because, of course, next to the living God, Goliath is very small. While David begins to ask around, the soldiers tell him about the huge reward for anyone who kills Goliath. And then you see two responses to David, right? The first one is anger from his older brother there in verse 28. He gets, like, like, like any older brother, right, he gets angry at the nosy little brother who is going around asking questions, right? He, he, says, he basically says to him, this is none of your business, right? You're wasting everybody's time. Go back to the father's sheep. You know, this is an interesting theme in Scripture. We've seen this before. Whether it's Joseph and his brothers, you know, his brother selling him into slavery. Whether it's Aaron and Miriam accusing their brother Moses. Now you've got David and Eliab. This won't be the last time when family members oppose God's chosen servants. But David basically just ignores Eliab and, and, and carries on. The other response is not anger, but skepticism. And we see this from Saul. They bring David to Saul, and David volunteers to fight. He doesn't make a big show of it, but he says, you know, nobody lose heart. I'll, I'll take this guy on. And Saul here is understandably skeptical. You know, the issue that Saul raises is not so much uh, David's size, but his experience. You know, not only is Goliath a giant, but he's been fighting all his life. He's been fighting for longer than David has even been alive. But David responds that actually he's a warrior too. He's seen plenty of combat action. He's defeated lions and bears while keeping the sheep. But, but even more than that, David appeals not to his experience. No, he appeals to the honor and the power of God. Right? That's what really matters. Goliath has defied God. And so just as God saved David before, so God will deliver Goliath into his hands. I have no idea how David convinced Saul to let him go fight. But he does, and eventually Saul lets him go. He tries to give David his armor, but David, but David can't even move in it. No, he's not used to it, he says. So, perhaps even more shocking than letting him go fight, he lets him go fight without any armor, without any weapons. Instead, David takes his shepherd's staff, he takes a sling, he takes five stones, and off he goes to face Goliath. 
Friends, if, if you had been a soldier there on that battle line, you would have been shocked at that sight. Uh, to see a little, a young shepherd boy running out to face Goliath. No armor, no sword, not even 20 years of age. And before him is this massive tank of a man, virtually unconquerable. You would not have thought, yes, that's the savior that we need. No, you would have thought, oh man, this is going to be a disaster. This is not going to end well. But, friends, this is exactly how God works. God works against human wisdom, against human expectations. Why? So that he can display his power and his wisdom. Is it any surprise then that many, many years later, when the Messiah came, the son of David, he would also be a totally unexpected hero. Born in a manger, born to a poor carpenter and his young wife from the little obscure village of Nazareth. And he would live the life of a traveling teacher, homeless, rejected by men until he dies on the cross at the end of his short career. That's not what people were expecting back then from the Messiah. Which is why in the end they killed him. You know, to this day, people continue to try to remake Jesus into our own image. Right? Have you ever noticed, especially if you're like a seminarian here like, and familiar with New Testament studies, have you ever noticed how many different interpretations of Jesus there are in our culture? in our world, right? You got, you got Jesus, the cultural conservative. You've got Jesus, the progressive liberal. Jesus, the academic scholar. Jesus, the wise philosopher. Jesus, the hippie. Right? Jesus, the, the therapeutic healer. Jesus, the political rebel. Jesus, the anarchist. And on and on it goes. Now, people are all too happy to reshape Christ into their image and into the image of what they think this world needs. But in fact, all those illusions are simply a remaking of Christ after our expectations, after our wisdom, rather than God's wisdom. What we see here in this passage is that God's wisdom is going to look like foolishness to us. And yet, as we see in the Bible, the foolishness of God is stronger than man's best wisdom. You know, it would seem like suicide to send a little shepherd boy to go fight a giant. But in fact, as we see here, David is no weakling. No, he, he was no helpless little boy. I, I mean, I love those children's storybook Bibles that depict like this little five-year-old fighting a giant. I, I think that's, that's wrong. Um, it, he, he was a fierce shepherd warrior, having killed lions and bears. He doesn't have any armor, but he's got mobility and he's got speed on his side, right? He, he comes looking very simple and unassuming, but that gives him the element of surprise, right? Goliath's guard is down. And with his sling, he can launch a stone bullet at 130 miles per hour with deadly accuracy. You know, sending a shepherd looks like foolishness. But in the wisdom of God, David is the perfect counter to an arrogant, slow, heavily armored opponent like Goliath. So here's my point. Friends, if, if there's not something unexpected about Jesus that shocks you and offends you and goes against your sensibilities, then you're probably not understanding him correctly. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is the righteousness of God. And he has this amazing ability to offend us all equally. So for those of you who are living for money and possessions, Jesus comes to you and says that your stuff is going to be destroyed by rust and by moths. No, he tells you, sell what you have, give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. For those of you who have bought into this world's lies about sexuality being your identity, 
Jesus says to you, deny yourselves. Apart from a monogamous marriage to a person of the opposite sex, you must be celibate. And yet, your life matters more than your lusts. For those of you who have been horribly wronged, Jesus says to you, forgive. Love your enemies. Don't live in your victimhood, but seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And for, those, for all of you who are saying, yeah, Jesus, tell them. Tell them what it's like. Jesus says to all of you Pharisees, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, if you're going to know Jesus rightly, don't expect that everything about him will, will, will just perfectly agree with how you think about this world. The world teaches us that the way to succeed and get ahead is by power, by putting yourselves forward, by gaining wealth and influence for yourself. Jesus says, no, the path of life is by humbling yourself, by serving others sacrificially, by forgiving, by weeping over your sins, and by trusting in him. This is how we find joy. This is how we find abundance. The unexpected hero and his unexpected ways, they're not foolishness. No, they are the wisdom and the power of God. D.A. Carson puts it this way. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor but he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And he sent us a savior. Point number three, the king's unstoppable salvation. The king's unstoppable salvation. Look at verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as David saw David, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. 
And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered him, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Well, when Goliath sees David coming, he despises him, right? He's insulted by David's appearance. You're going to send this guy to fight me? You think I'm some kind of dog? You know, I think that was exactly God's intention. Uh, This is basically God's way of saying to Goliath, this is what I think of you, Goliath. You've spent 40 days insulting the living God, and now you are about to be utterly humiliated in front of all these people. You know, what's about to take place is no accident. And we know this because of verses 45 through 47. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, before the first attack, David declares what is about to take place. God is going to use David to strike Goliath down, and cut off his head and give his body to the wild animals. Why? 47. So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Everything has been perfectly orchestrated in order that the world may know that the God of Israel is the one true living God. And so now, having declared what is about to happen, we see the classic battle unfold. David slings a stone that nails Goliath right on the forehead. You know, did did that stone bullet pierce through the helmet? Or did he just like slip it past the helmet somehow? I have no idea. I don't know. But whatever it was, Goliath was totally knocked out by a stone from a sling from this little shepherd boy. And right away, David goes and stands over him And with Goliath's own sword, he cuts off his head. God utterly humiliates David and all those who trusted in him. What I love about this passage is just how quickly David defeats Goliath. I mean, I mean, this victory, I mean, there's no there's no prolonged struggle. There's no back and forth, uncertain tension. No, just one shot, boom. Goliath goes down, and his head is cut off. All that might, all that armor, all that bravado, in the blink of an eye, gone. And just as David predicted, the Philistines flee, the Israelites rally, they defeat the Philistines all the way back to their cities, slaughtering and plundering them along the way. The people of God are saved. The chapter closes then with Saul asking, who is this guy? And, you know, some of this is administrative. After all, he's going to get a reward. Uh, He's going to get tax exemptions. He's going to give his daughter's hand in marriage. So he needs to know, like, who's 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 his dad? What family does he come from? But the narrator, I think, wants us to realize that David's family background is hugely significant. He comes from the family of Jesse from the city of Bethlehem, from the line of Judah, as we saw earlier. This was the line that long ago in Genesis 49, in Numbers 24, was foretold that from that tribe would come a scepter, and this scepter would rule over the nations. In other words, this victory is not just a one-off event. No, it is part of God's unstoppable plan of salvation through his chosen king. I think David, at this point, has some sense of the unique role that he is playing in redemptive history. And the clue is Goliath's head. I mean, it it makes sense that he would loot Goliath's armor and weapons, but, but why is he carrying around Goliath's head? I mean, he's, Saul calls him to his tent, and he shows up carrying the head of the giant in his hand. 
what in the world is going on? That, I, that must have made for an awkward conversation, I would imagine. Just like, okay, anyways, I won't, I won't try to describe it. Um, why is he carrying around his head? And why is he bringing Goliath's head to Jerusalem? As we see there in verse 54. You know, Jerusalem is going to be the city where David is going to set up his capital. I assume that the reference of him bringing Goliath's head to Jerusalem happens after he has established, he has been, become established there as the king. In those days, kings would often display the head of their enemies on a spike outside the city walls as a warning to all those who would oppose him, as a proclamation of his triumph. This is what the Philistines would do to Saul's body after he dies in chapter 31. So it appears that David would do the same thing with Goliath's head there in Jerusalem. But this isn't just to show his victory over the Philistines. No, Goliath's head would exist as a monument to verse 46, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. In doing so, I think David is reflecting back on Genesis 3.15, the promise that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Goliath covered in scale armor, this this serpent-like enemy who has come up against God's people. Goliath's head has has been crushed. It has been chopped off and it has been put on display as a reminder to the world that God's Salvation is coming. That God's unstoppable salvation is coming through his anointed king. The serpent's head will be crushed. And that would happen many years later when once again the son of David, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the unexpected hero, would come to the rescue of God's people. There outside Jerusalem, where, God, where Goliath's head was once put on display, Jesus freely and boldly volunteered. He went forward to face our unconquerable enemies of Satan, of death, and of our sin. There on the cross, Jesus engaged in single combat against our worst enemies. Satan unleashed his fury upon him. He bore our sins upon his body. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the very bottom. And he died the death that we deserved. And when they laid his body in the tomb, Jesus looked like the unlikeliest of heroes. But then on the third day, just as he foretold, Jesus rose from the dead, having exhausted God's wrath against our sin. He rose from the dead in absolute victory over Satan, over death, over our sin. Our sin has been fully paid so that Satan no longer has any accusation left against us. And the curse of death has been removed. And now Jesus leads his people to victory. Oh, friends, see your Savior standing over the fallen Goliath. See him draw Goliath's own sword and chop off his head. And then see him raise that dead head of your sin, of Satan, and of death. Hear the roar of the angels, the roar of God's people, as all of our enemies flee before the Son of David. Friends, whoever you are, you have a Savior. His name is Jesus. Stop doubting. Stop being afraid. Follow him. Join him in his unstoppable salvation. His victory took place 2,000 years ago on a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And his victory march continues down to our day and will go on for eternity. So to close, I want to speak to three groups of people here this morning. First, I want to speak to those who are apathetic listeners. You find all this church stuff and Bible stuff boring. You are more interested in video games 
and Netflix and the Chiefs game this afternoon. Friends, Satan's strategy in your life is to make you distracted by the world and bored by Christ. Jesus describes Satan like birds that come along and eat up the seed of God's word before they can take root in our hearts. Satan has blinded you to the thrilling, the weighty truths of our humanity, the horrors of our rebellion against God, and the glories of the Savior, so that we can hear a story like this and yawn. Oh, but friends, our great king will not let you go. He has brought you here even this morning to once again hear this amazing message. And I pray maybe even this morning something has broken through. Oh, perhaps, just perhaps you're thinking, could there be something here for me? Could there be something more to this life than just my distractions and my pleasures? Friend, if there is any spark of interest, if there is any glimmer of life, that is the work of our unstoppable Savior in your life. Do not let it go. Grab hold of that glimmer. Cultivate it. Talk to a friend even today. Talk to a parent about it. Make it your goal this holiday season to encounter your Savior. Read through the Gospel of Mark. If you don't know how to go about doing that, if if you've never read the Bible before, There are so many people here who would love to to sit down with you and help you do that. And even as you do so, pray that God would free you from the bondage of Satan, that he would open your eyes to your glorious Savior and reveal to you the unstoppable salvation that is held out to you. Jesus is exactly the Savior that you need. I also want to speak to the suffering listeners here this morning. People have betrayed you. People have hurt you. Sickness and disease have afflicted you. Life has left you beat up and wounded on the side of the road. Friend, you don't need a Superman as a hero. You need Jesus, the one who also was rejected by men the one who was also unjustly accused, who was flogged and nailed to a tree, the one who took death's best shot and walked out of the tomb more alive than you and I have ever been. Friend, whatever suffering you are experiencing, you have a Savior who has removed the sting of death. You have a Savior who promises to never leave you or forsake you. And you have a Savior who frees you from your bitterness and gives you hope. He promises that your suffering can be turned for his good purposes and that your suffering will have an end. You will outlive your pain. And you can know that all through Jesus Christ. He is exactly the Savior that you need. And finally, let me speak to any sinful listeners here this morning? Do I have any big sinners here this morning? Right? I, don't, I, don't, I don't need any little sinners. I'm talking about big sinners. Right? You know that you're a sinner. You know that you have not met your own expectations for yourself, let alone God's expectations for you. And your failures have hurt those whom you love. Friends, Jesus is exactly the Savior that you need. Jesus said he came not to save the righteous, but the sinners. So so if you know yourself to be a sinner, you are the category for whom Christ came. And he did so by paying your debt, by exhausting God's wrath against you, so that you might be forgiven, so that you might be reconciled to God, adopted to his family forever. Friend, Christ's Death on the cross is the sword that cuts the head off of all of our unconquerable enemies. All that's left for us to do is to trust him, to own him as our king, as our savior. When we trust in Christ, Satan is powerless. Death becomes the pathway to glory and our sins are forever wiped away. He is exactly the savior that we need.
So why would you look anywhere else? Let's pray together. And before I lead us in prayer, take a moment now just to reflect on what you've heard and in quietness respond to God in your own heart. And then I'll lead us in prayer in a bit. Lord Jesus, you are the long-expected Savior. You are the desire of the nations. You are the hope and the joy of every longing heart. Oh, Lord Jesus, we come this morning to you, knowing that you are the fulfillment of all that we need. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you open our eyes to the victory that you have accomplished for us. Lord, that because you have come, we have hope. Hope beyond this life. Hope beyond our, our trials, our sufferings. Hope of a life with you forever. Oh God, fill us with joy. Fill us with joy this Christmas season as we remember your coming. Lord, may we remember your victory. Fill us with joy, we pray, and cause that joy to overflow so that we would declare to the world what it is that you have done. We pray all this in your name, in your victorious name. Amen.